have a copy of God's Word there available to you. We are going to be once again in the little letter, 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Reading verses 3, 4, and 5 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, give in this moment what we so desperately need, and that be the work of your Spirit. As you have Lord, so graciously ministered to us this morning already, we ask you do so once again now through your word preached. Guide what is said and oversee what is heard. Let it be for our good and your glory by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the year 1910, and there was an 11-year-old boy who was from Wales by the last name of Jones. In search of a better education, his parents sent him away to a boarding school, which was not uncommon in that day, but it was far from home. Now, he did well academically. He was a good student. He liked his companion but he suffered. For one thing, he suffered from the cold a great deal. The school he was in, um, not known for being well heated. He even suffered from chillblains, which is a, something of an inherited condition. Capillary beds in the skin get damaged and it causes itching and burning and discomfort. But in addition to all that, he suffered at the same time from a far greater sickness, a more painful one. And that was, I'll use the Welsh word, I'm no Welshman, but I'm going to give it a shot. He ref. That's an interesting sounding word, isn't it? He ref. It's the Welsh longing, homesickness. He wrote about it, I'm pleased to tell my friends at Tregaron that I do not hold them or the place responsible for this. What's the reason for it? Well, it really can't be explained. Be that as it may, it's an awful thing, as also is the feeling of loneliness 
and of being destitute and unhappy which stem from it. It is difficult to define, but to me it means the consciousness of a man being out of his home area, that which is dear to him. That's why it can even be felt among a host of people and even in the midst of great beauty. Hira, longing, homesickness. Every Christian experiences something like this hiraf, this homesickness. We struggle because we find ourselves in a world antagonistic toward us, at times indifferent, certainly toward us, certainly slighting of us. Peter is writing to Christians there in northern Asia Minor who are finding themselves in trouble. The more formalized persecution will come later. What they deal with now is more casual persecution, but it's still hard. How do you go about living, as what he says in the first verse, elect exiles in this world? Matthew Henry said, a good Christian's condition is never so bad, but he has great reason to still bless God. As a sinner has always reason to mourn, notwithstanding his present prosperity, so good people in the midst of manifold difficulties have reason still to rejoice and bless God. Now, how does Simon Peter tell us to do this? He doesn't merely say, now you need to buck up, get tough, work at it harder. No. Go to something entertaining. No, he actually wants you to think about your salvation. He wants you to meditate on these things. You and I need to feed ourselves with the reality of grace. When you don't think, when you don't think through this, when you don't apply it, you rob yourself of essentials of seeing the greatness of God and what He has done. These things do not come into us naturally, but only supernaturally. And having come into us in this way, they require our attention. Notice his opening here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he has stopped to worship as he's talking to people who are having a difficult, trying time. One of the reasons I had his read for the responsive from Ephesians, the first chapter, is there seems to be some parallels in Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul's thinking and language. Who'd have thought? Having been saved by the same glorious Christ, having been indwelt by the same Spirit, having been chosen by the same Father, having been taught the very same things, you find echoes of one another. I hear folks at times, well, the Bible's filled with all sorts of contradictions. (laughs) I don't think you've ever really read the Bible. The longer I read, the longer I study this, what stands out is not the apparent conflicts, but rather 
the overarching unity of this text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is this Trinitarian element. We saw it in the first two verses that elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Peter cannot get over what has happened to him. And while he will shortly after this face death, he does it with a great and glorious sense of joy because he knows what is true and he knows the one in whom he has placed his faith and trust. Blessed be the God and Father. He, he cannot help but stop to thank God. Folks, part of what we do this morning in the worship is to stop and thank God. Uh, part of the wonder of that call to worship this morning, did it strike you? It should have. I know that was Rob's intent, certainly in my mind and heart. Here is Job blessing God. Job falls down and worships. There is no hiding his agony. He is not pretending he's not suffering. He doesn't pull what so many of the reckless heretics of our own era do, that it's all your fault if you just said the right words, did the right thing, gave the right amount of money, did this, did this, did this, you'd be out from under all of those things. No. Job, did, you, did it catch you this morning? Is he the first thing? He rips his clothing. He shaves his head. I, surely a handsome fellow. And um, puts on sackcloth. And having done all of that in preparation, then he falls on the ground and worships. He is thoughtful about this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Peter can write to these believers and encourage them. And it, you know, it's those moments. One Sunday morning after a service, a woman came up to her pastor and thanked him for the encouraging sermon he'd preached. And, he, in response, he said, well, why, why, don't thank me, thank the Lord. And she said, well, I thought about it, but it wasn't quite that good. Um, <laughs> if we don't learn to look at these things, see, our, our struggle, friends, is we focus so much on the present. And how we focus is we want to be comfortable. We don't want any serious struggles or suffering. And, and if we think that way, we're going to struggle to live as exiles. It's really going to bother you. You see, you can worship when you know you're secure. Thomas Brooks actually preached a funeral message from verse 4 of this text for a woman, Mrs. Mary Blake. And the sermon was later published under the title, first title, A String of Pearls. I looked at each individual piece. Or the other title, The Best Things Reserved Till Last. 
the best things reserved to last. So what is it that you and I should take from this? What is the foundation for a living hope? That's the language Peter uses here. Verse 3, born again to a living hope. Not a, a casual hope, not a dead hope, not a confessed hope without any reality to it, but a genuine living hope. First, you must recognize the supernatural past, Christian, of your own life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He's caused us, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, Christian, this is your supernatural commencement. The reason for this new birth, His great mercy. You don't des deserve this. He shows it. I'm reminded of the story of the fellow who was going before the queen and he had somehow offended her royal highness. He had somehow offended her law. And the wife of the condemned man pleads with the queen for grace and mercy. And the queen hears her cry, hears her plea, and says to her, but he doesn't deserve it. And the man's wife, which is exactly, your majesty, the point of mercy and grace. If he deserved it, I wouldn't be pleading for it. I'm asking you to give what he doesn't deserve. My friend, the origin of your salvation always is anchored in this certainty. God chose to love. God chose to show mercy. God takes the initiative by his or according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again i've mentioned this before but a good place to mention again in western evangelicalism a mistake was made some years ago where we made the idea that being born again was something that we controlled Books written, How to Be Born Again. Let me let you in on something, folks. That's about as sensible as explaining to somebody how to be born. You do recognize, my friend, that you were passive in the project. You came to be. You had nothing to do with being. Right? He caused us to be born again. God must bring the new birth. It is an entirely an act of God to do that. While Charles Wesley was truly Arminian, when he wrote, and can it be, he wrote like a Calvinist. He did. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Right? 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I love that. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was freed. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The new birth is the act of God. It secures, as our confession says, the immediate voluntary obedience to the gospel. What is the confidence in the new birth? Hope. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter ties the new birth to the resurrection. Jesus coming out of the grave alive is foundational to our hope. This is the element of supernatural, if you will, that is consummating the work of salvation. We must always, my brothers and sisters, always affirm the substitutionary, atoning, penal substitutionary, atoning death of Christ on the cross. Right? Christ must die for sinners. We must never lose that. To lose that is to lose the gospel. But can I tell you on the other side of that, if you lose the bodily resurrection, either by heresy and error or by neglect, you've also lost the gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Christ conquered death. You live long enough, you see a lot of friends and family and loved ones die. You know, nobody kind of warned you of that prospect of living a long time. People you love die. Now that's a certainty, my friend, that's a, that's a reality. What is it that allows a Christian to maintain through all of this? I guess that you are probably like me. There are dates, seasons in your head and heart, right? When you recall that moment that someone near and dear What are we supposed to do? <laughs> we are to believe in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That our dark anniversaries of loved ones' deaths will only be dark in this world and that darkness is attenuated by this certainty. If they are his, they shall live again. They are in the Lord's hands now, and one day in the mystery beyond our comprehension, bodily raised immortal. 
You see, my friend, it's hard to have hope if you don't understand this confidence of the resurrection. Paul will say, Romans 4.25, Jesus delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. There's one, that he was buried. you got to get that in there too because you don't bury people unless they're dead and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And if you don't get that, my friends, you have not gotten gospel hope. Christian, follow this as well. That supernatural beginning, that act of God to raise you from spiritual death. Oh, <laughs> you read it in John's Gospel, the fifth chapter, Jesus will talk about the Son of God, the the, the Lord, the Master, having the power to raise the dead. He said, you're going to see dead people live. And then he goes on to say, there's an hour coming when they'll also hear the voice of the Son of God and they'll live. But the first one, I believe, is saying, in one sense, he's saying, while Jesus is alive on earth, he calls people out of the grave. He had the power to do that. And the future is that yet future resurrection. But I also believe that Jesus is giving us a clue about what it takes for you and I to be saved. We must be called out of death. Sinners aren't sick, they're dead. They're not injured, they're dead. They're not weak, they're dead. Dead folk don't do nothing. They dead. He calls them to life. As surely as he called Lazarus from the tomb, he called your name out of spiritual death for your salvation, my friend. And he that was dead came forth. Hmm. Do you understand that also makes you a living testimony to the reality of the resurrection and the coming kingdom? Right now. <laughs> Every single Christian is already under the king's reign, already regenerated, already his, living out this life in hope of that future. So, the first element of this being able to have a foundation for living hope is the supernatural past. Secondly, the glorious prospect, verse 4, uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I love this. Peter is struggling to find adequate words. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Untouched by death is what he means. Imperishable. The world will be destroyed, but our inheritance is indestructible. This inheritance we get shall never die. Robert Louis Stevenson, his poem, When the Stars Are Gone, the stars shine over the mountains, the stars shine over the sea, the stars look upon the might of God, the stars look down on me. The stars shall last for a million years, a million years in a day, but God and I will excuse me, but God and I will live and love 
when the stars have passed away. It is unstained by evil. Undefiled. Folks, we are so polluted by sin. We are so polluted by pride. This is almost impossible for us to imagine. <laughs> a time, a place, a world without sin. Without fear. Without sickness. Without decay. Without death. I don't know about you. I can talk about it. I can articulate it. But trying to imagine it kind of gets out of hand. I don't have a reference point. Untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. Unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Wow. Our inheritance is not simply a land, a city, or even a new earth. It is all that God will give us, His salvation. It's ready to be revealed, ready right now, won't be revealed till the last day. Think of it this way, my friend. Suppose you were called into an attorney's office, got a notification. We need to talk. You had a relative that you didn't know about, and they have left you a sizable inheritance. So you go to the, talk to the attorney, and you're excited. That's great. Maybe I can pay off my house, get a new Toyota. Maybe, you know. I don't, folks, you dream a little smaller, it makes life a little easier. All right? <laughs> the attorney says, well, uh, it's really a very large inheritance. Well, maybe a nicer car. No, you don't, it's really large. You mean Lexus? To which he responds, you're not following me. You'll be able to afford a fleet. But right now he gets the down payment because it's going to take a little while to assess the value of everything you've got. My friend, we tend to undercut and downplay the glorious nature of this inheritance. Paul will say in Ephesians 1, 13, 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to praise his glory. What's the down payment that you're going to get this? God gave you his spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. See, it's what we mean when we say, well, is Jesus, you know, Jesus in you, my friend? The Father plans your salvation, the Son purchases your salvation, the Spirit applies that salvation, and it is the Spirit of God who dwells in you right now. And He is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. So when you talk about Jesus dwelling in you, this is what we actually are articulating. The Spirit of God is at work in you. Now please don't let somebody from our neo-charismatic world make you think that you don't have the Spirit of God if you haven't spoken in tongues, or you haven't had this experience, or this experience, or this experience. If you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come to him in repentance and faith the spirit of god has already been granted to you as a down payment what he has done he has promised and he has set in you this certainty the spirit of god is at work in you hmm. all right so we've got a, a supernatural past a glorious prospect right now as we look ahead but can i point out something else it's that fifth verse Here's the foundation, an omnipotent promise. Now, did you notice how he does this? 
He ends the fourth verse by saying this inheritance is unfading and kept in heaven for you. Okay? Okay, that sounds good. The Lord's got it. He's got it in His keeping. It's safe. What about me? Mm. Who by God's power of being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guarded could be translated shielded. It's a military word. It indicated a fortress or a garrisoned city. It's used in places of protective custody. God, in essence, has put you under arrest, as it were, to keep you safe. Pilgrims we may be, but the cloud of God's power that leads us in the way becomes a wall of fire about us. He keeps us. Hmm. I know. Well, if I'm messing up, you can't mess it up. He must keep you. Well, if I lose, my friend, if you could, you would. Simply put, if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. My word, you can't even keep track of your car keys. Sometimes you forget to turn on crockpots. There's a story behind that you don't want to know. <laughs> well, maybe you do, but it's none of your business, and I've already tracked farther than I should have into that. Just say that there was a hurried trip to Hy-Vee early this morning. Um, <clears throat> folks, we, by our very nature, can mess this up. We are kept garrisoned. Arrest. I, I kind of like that idea of arrested, protective custody. Doug, for your own good, I'm going to fix this so you can't mess it up. Thank you, Lord. Now, I could put it this way. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is done for us. And there are two cases, if you will, for that omnipotent promise, two elements for it. The subordinate one is faith. The supreme one is God's power. Why faith? Because faith is resting in the power and promise of the Lord. It's not your doing, it's what He's doing. I am saved by trusting Him. It's what He does. Kept by faith, kept in that faith by the power of God, and it is the power of God that is supreme. Writer of Hebrews, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Or oh, I love Jude 24 and 25. Remember how he concludes that little letter? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. In, I know that's you. I can almost start preaching that text now. All right? Relax, I'm going to get done, I promise. To him who is able, not you, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless I don't know about you, but I'm plenty blameworthy. Mm. Before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.
My friend, you and I are guarded, guarded by the power of God. This is why hymns like, He will hold me fast. I cannot get through that hymn without sobbing. When I think my faith will fail, He will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. Can you imagine the effect these words from Peter had on that small, dispersed Sunday gathering of Christians in the first century? Consider what it is doing for you now. Oh, Christian, you are in the situation of an increasingly hostile culture. I've said it before, I say it again because I don't think you're catching this. It's not only they disagree with you, it's not only they think that maybe you're a little nuts, they have decided you are evil. Mm. How do we have hope? In the same way these early Christians did, in the same way Simon Peter did. They had believed the gospel, their lives were hard, they were discouraged, but the promise here, an inheritance kept for you, and you kept for the inheritance. The world will treat you as an exile. So be it. The Lord has selected you as His. And He will hold you. This, my friend, is glorious, delightful, soul-stirring gospel hope. Let this feed our hearts and souls this day. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for the help that only you can grant. We ask, Father, that you 